A very pleasant good morning, and isn't it a great thing to be a Christian? Certainly, as was mentioned earlier, we'd like to express a note of appreciation for the assembly, the gathering of every single person that's here today, our membership at Pippin, certainly, and yet visitors who also have chosen to come our way. We want you to know, everybody, how thankful we are to be here. And it's our hope and our earnest trust that we can worship God in a way that He will accept and He'll be pleased with it. A note or two before we begin our lesson, a, again, a word of thankfulness, a word of commendation to this congregation for the extensive support you gave to the Gospel Meeting in Heron's Chapel this past week. The brethren there were so very thankful for, for your encouragement, for, for your presence, and so Denise and I also feel that very, very same way, and we just want to express a thank you to you for that. But also along that line, might I say that we have a rather great event taking place beginning one week from today. Brother Cale mentioned it a moment ago, but our gospel meeting, it seems like it's come so quickly, hasn't it? We began to make announcements about it probably six or seven weeks ago, and now next week, Brother Tim McHenry will be with us. Services on Sunday morning and then Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock, and no services at the, at the typical hour next Sunday night, and then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 7 p.m., in case you're unfamiliar with uh, Mr. McHenry, he's uh, been a preacher for many, many years, and I think you'll be very moved and compellingly so as he delivers to us the Word of God. Please clear your calendar, if at all you can, and be ready to come and be a part of this fantastic soul-winning effort. Along that line, be inviting some folks who so desperately need to be here with us, those who might respond or at least be challenged to think about the gospel message, that they might come and that they might, in fact, hear that precious thing they need so much. Aren't you amazed on occasion how that certain text, certain scripture, certain verses in the Bible pose what appears to be such an interesting observation? As a jewel of gold in a swine snout, so is a fair woman without discretion. Now, the analogy, it's hard to miss it, isn't it? The consideration, that which is presented to us, we consider how inappropriate it is to put something as fine, something as expensive as a jewel of gold in a pig's nose. The pig won't appreciate what it's worth. The pig won't understand the character of what value there is inherent in it. And yet, in some way, so too is something like a fair woman without discretion. Let's see if we can discuss that a bit this morning. As we do so in light of thinking about implications and things that can be certainly very meaningful and very moving for you and for me. You'll notice on that slide that certainly as thankful as we are for the first day of the week and the privilege that God has given us to assemble, we also are reminded, aren't we, that we have certainly been full thrust into the spring season of the year. The temperatures are warm and the weather is so often pleasant. But I might suggest along that same line, there are some things that sometimes are not so good. The choices that are made relative to clothing styles and the particulars that often surround this warm weather and the lack of clothing that sometimes goes with it. Let's develop that as we put these passages together this morning. And let's think then a little bit about what the Bible has to say. As is true of every subject, this one too demands our honesty and our earnestness it demands us to allow God to tell us explicitly and directly what it is that He would have us to know and do. And it's not my interest nor yours, I know, to sugarcoat or somehow excuse myself from what God says. 
But this is a lesson that all of us can often have opportunity to help others understand as well. Even if you and I may not be the ones guilty of this, we live in a world that so desperately needs the message. We live in a world that so often has chosen the pathway of wrongness in this matter. And let's begin our lesson like this then. I want you to think with me about nakedness for a moment. Now certainly my desire is to be discreet and my desire is to present this the way the Bible does. And we know the Bible, that is the Word of God, is always right. As you transition back with me to this observation, the human body, yours and mine, yea, every single human body is a fantastic and marvelously created thing from the God of heaven. It was made exactly the way He wanted it, and it bears all the characteristics and hallmarks that go with that reality of what He made. I will praise Thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are Thy works, the writer said, and that my soul knoweth right well. Psalm 139, verse 14. In fact, though, to speak about that attribute of the Word of God, you'll notice there's an overwhelming reality of the fact that God made it. And in that sense, it carries with it the nature and the character of what it was His will. Could I direct your attention to 1 Corinthians 12, 18? Now, admittedly, there Paul was making a rather notable spiritual application. In the church, every member is vital and every member is important. But the way Paul defended that was, don't you realize that that's true in the human body as well? The eye can't say to the foot, I don't have any need of you. For even though the body might see, well, it wouldn't be able to get anywhere very easily. Or by the same token, the nose can't say to the ear, I have no need of you. And so isn't it so that this human body, with all the marvelous design inherent in it, is truly a remarkable testimony and witness to God's design. It was the way that He wanted it. But by the same token, there are some members of the body that are more uncomely, to use the King James wording of 1 Corinthians 12, 23. That is to say, some parts of the body are not for your viewing, and nor are mine. In other words, these more secretive, more private parts are intended by God to be appropriately concealed, appropriately covered, and I myself, and you yourself for your body, can take appropriate care for those private things. To say all of that is to quickly come to this. Go back to Adam and Eve with me for just a moment. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we have a remarkable presentation of so many things, and one of which is this. God had fashioned the man and his wife, had fashioned Adam and Eve, and this statement is made. They both were naked and were without shame. Here were Adam and Eve living with no clothes of any kind, and there was no shame. There was no reason for them to blush. No reason for them to feel insecure about that aspect of their presentation. They were without shame. But so quickly in the next chapter, that changed almost immediately. Because you'll notice that the tempter came before Eve and she gave in and ate of that forbidden fruit. And so too did her husband as she gave to him and he did eat too. That's verse 6. May I invite you to notice what happened in the very next verse. The first thing they did... The very first thing they did after taking the forbidden fruit, it says they knew they were naked and they proceeded to make aprons. They made something like modern-day swimwear. They made these things out of fig leaves that were basically 
belts and not much more. Now, that was perhaps the best in the quickness of the moment they knew how to do. But the fact is, you notice that nakedness suddenly now was different. It was not something to be publicly presented. It was not something that was to be, let's say, presented in a fashion whereby others, in a public forum and way, would be able to, to appreciate it. You might notice immediately, as you come to Genesis 3.21... God remedied that situation as He prepared clothes for them. And you'll notice the text is very clear. He made very covering clothing. It wasn't just swimsuits, and it wasn't just something that covers that very minimal amount of the body. God covered them far more adequately, and of course, far more correctly. As He did that, might I invite you now to draw these lessons with me. Before the sin in Eden, nakedness was not wrong. Nakedness was not inappropriate. But after that time, nakedness without, nakedness without shame in general is wrong. And might we say there appears and from the Word of God to be but one place. That is to say, but one environment in which nakedness without sin can still be appreciated. And it's in the confines of a scriptural marriage. A husband and a wife... They are given by God that opportunity and that privilege, if you please, but no other place is nakedness without shame to be presented and to be seen and experienced in the Word of God. May I use some verses to help us perhaps see that point? You'll notice at the very bottom, could I ask how the Bible describes the way a man looks on a woman? Let's make this distinction. First, what about a husband? who looks upon his wife, and perhaps even the nakedness of her. May I suggest to you the Bible wholeheartedly states that that is a satisfying thing. It does not condemn that at all. To your attention, might I call Proverbs chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, where that statement, that particular is set before all of us for all time, and it's highlighted as not an inappropriate or bad thing. The, song, the book called The Song of Solomon highlights it even more graphically. In chapters 4 and 7 of that book, that description is given, and it sets before us the fact that God has given to a man and his wife that prerogative, that satisfying matter that is a part of what he fashioned. But look how different this is. What if a man looks on a woman who is not his wife? Oh, the Bible's very clear about this. We might begin as early as Proverbs 6.25 where there even in the Old Testament, long before the coming of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant, long before the perfect covenant came, even then God said, you don't look on a woman to lust after her. And of course Jesus amplified and declared that rather clearly, didn't He, in Matthew 5.28. Whoso looketh on a woman... To lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Do you see with me the distinction? A husband and a wife are granted nakedness without shame, and that is not given to anybody else. A man isn't to look upon a woman the same way he looks on his wife when it comes to that. And of course, that goes for a, a wife as she would look upon a man other than her husband. Perhaps as we develop that a little bit more interestingly and carefully... Let me make an observation, and it certainly is no revelation to any of us who are observers of the times about us. 
we live in a very vicious cycle. That cycle I've tried to quickly identify and explain in the words about the middle of that slide. And it would appear that the cycle is rather rapidly increasing its pace. By that cycle, I mean this. You and I understand very well that there are individuals who choose to wear inadequate clothing. They make that choice. And yet, there is a segment of our society that thrives on that pornography. They like it. They pursue it. They, in fact, wholeheartedly condone it. They find ways to themselves enjoy what it offers. And because individuals like that, the makers of clothing and articles and other things, they, of course, have their part in that as they design more clothing to enhance it so they can make more money and they can sell more items. And it's a vicious cycle. You and I stand firmly upon the Word of God as we realize that this kind of matter the Word of God addresses. And it does so in the utmost of clarity. For those reasons, you'll note the bottom of that slide, and I make this statement without apology. The United States of America is a pornographic country. It's just that way. Think about the number of times you walk into a, a common place like a Walmart, a grocery store, or perhaps another discount store, and what you're faced with is those who choose to wear inadequate clothing. They choose to display what ought never to be seen except by his or her spouse. And in so doing, we have that that's presented so notably, so openly, and so often without any attribute of shame at all. Well, that's the very definition of pornography. It's one of the elemental characteristics and considerations of it. May I say then that it poses a challenge, and a rather notable one at that, for those who would wish to be in keeping with the Word of God, because we're admonished, in fact commanded, Brethren, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. What things? Philippians 4.8. Think on things that are true and honest, and just, and pure, and lovely, and of good report. There's what we're supposed to think about, and that does not include pornography. It doesn't. For that reason, again, we're facing challenges, very much so. Denise and I, not too many weeks ago, were, we had gone through a fast food restaurant and had gotten our food, and we were eating in the car. And as we were eating in that car, across the roadway, across the street, was a gasoline station with a typical convenience store. And while we were eating, there was a, a female, a young lady, who emerged from that convenience store wearing what amounts to nearly nothing. It was a modern bathing suit, but that's about all you could say. And it was clear that she felt comfortable. It was clear that the various and sundry matters of description relative to what she were wearing brought her no shame or uncomfortable feelings at all. And yet we live in a society like this. As we continue our journey this morning, thinking about the, the implications for us, the bottom of that slide does bring the following thought before us. It's interesting as you consider this with me. It's entirely possible for a man to be immodest. It's entirely possible for a male to choose to wear what itself is inappropriate and inadequate. But I think as we'll see in a moment, the majority share of the Bible verses in involving this are addressed to women. And there seems to be a very prolific reason for that. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So may I ask all of us to very earnestly 
and very honestly think about the kind of society in which we live and your place and mine in it. What am I choosing to wear? Every single morning, every one of us makes a decision. We open the closet door and we choose something to wear that day. That choice says a lot about my value system. It says a lot about what I ultimately wish to convey to others. It says a great deal about the message of comportment of my life. It says a great deal about what my ultimate and final priority is. It speaks volumes, and there's a lot of people watching the message I'm sending every day. And if that message is unwholesome, if that message is improper, if that message carries the matters that we'll describe this morning then I have fallen into error and my judgment's poor and I need to make some changes at once. As we begin this study on the next slide, let's do it in the following way. The statement at the top is perhaps an obvious one, but it bears at least a passing consideration. God made men and women different, and that isn't just physically. We understand that the human body is different for a male as it is for a female, but not only that, the psyche of a man and the psyche of a woman are not the same. There are things that stimulate a man that don't have near the same effect on a woman. And so it is, as you listen to the way a number of these Bible statements are made, would you highlight the following with me? God made a man in such a way that he is more visually oriented more visually stimulated in many ways, more visually aroused, if you please. And as you think about that, again, that seems not to be the same, at least in the general tone, for a female. And so it is that as God made us that way, remember, God does all things well, Genesis 1.31, and He did that for a reason. It makes for strong husbands and wives and strong marriages. It makes for strong unions between these two who have pledged themselves for life. But when that's improperly considered and improperly directed, you'll notice some of these things that are very immediately presented. I mentioned a moment ago about those choices that we make, and isn't it true that those choices speak a great deal about the condition of the heart? There's a text in Proverbs 7, verse number 10, that makes this very interesting phrase, and I'm just going to use four words out of it. But reference is made to a clothing choice by a woman. It says that she has adorned or chosen to wear the attire of an harlot. Now, Paul, ponder this with me. Here's a woman. She may never say a word. She may never offer anything else in light of any specific statements, but her clothing alone speaks volumes. I'm a prostitute, or at least I'm willing to act like one. I'm willing to dress like one. I'm willing to convey myself in behavior like one, though she may never speak a word. Isn't it true? Our clothes are making a statement about what's valuable to me and the kind of person I wish to present myself to others. Would your clothing and mine, though I might never purposefully make that claim, is it saying to someone else, his or her morals are not completely consistent with the Bible? He or she may attend Bible study and worship services, may, may even be known for many good things, but something about the clothing calls at least some elements into question. Let me suggest to you that's a very hurtful and damaging thing to the cause of goodness and the cause of righteousness. 
In Proverbs 23, verse number 7, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The clothing choices that I make are a reflection of my heart. No doubt about that. And therefore, as each of us give consideration to that, why don't we build it in the following way? Modern clothing lines in so many ways are rather pathetic. Judged by the standard of the Word of God, they're so pathetic because they highlight, again, what God said should not be seen in public. They try to inch as close to a boundary as they can, and sometimes they've crossed it. As all of that happens, you'll notice words like sexy attire. May I say to you, that belongs in marriage and nowhere else. Clothing ought not be for the general populace to highlight as sexy. That completely misses God's point. Clothing ought never to be provocative. That belongs in marriage for a husband and his wife and nowhere else. Clothing ought never to be selected just because it might be described that way. And may I say that if such is described that way, you and I may need to add a few elements to that clothing line when we wear it in public because the designer may have an ungodly disposition. And therefore, we may need to wear additional clothing to cover up what they wish to be shown. For those reasons, you might notice this next point. We have a statement in the Word of God, and it is to that I'll turn our attention beginning at this point. It's found in 1 Timothy. In the second chapter of that book, we encounter verse number 9. In the midst of a presentation that highlights and sets before those of that day. And remember, it was the city of Ephesus. Timothy had been stationed in that city we call Ephesus, and it was a city known for its idolatry. Remember, Diana, the worship of Diana took place there in Acts 19. And not only that, we remember a number of other choices that were made by the citizens of that place, highlighting any number of activities that God would frown upon. And yet, in the midst of that culture, we find the following statement. Again, verse number 9 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. As you give thought to the statement that Paul made, it is a very strong statement. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Would you, would you be impressed? He addresses the women. It's not the men. As I said earlier, it's certainly possible for a man to be guilty of immodesty. The Bible simply in other verses highlight that. But in this case, the major share, the greater matter of consideration here needed to rest with the female. That women adorn themselves. That word adorn, isn't that an interesting word? It has to do with the presentation, the comportment. And you'll notice that she's to adorn herself in modest apparel. So a reference is made to the clothing she's choosing to wear. And it's supposed to be modest. In order to help us with that, I have defined what that Greek word identifies, what that Greek word that the Holy Spirit chose, it means to be well arranged. It means to be seemly. It means to be characteristic of good behavior. Could I call your attention to that word seemly? There is clothing that's proper and acceptable, and there's other clothing that's not. Now, the world may think it's acceptable, but remember, our goal is to be within the confines of the judgment of God. God says some clothing is just not satisfactory. 
as women are urged to adorn themselves in this way, look at that which comes next. Now, this is a word that we use very little in English. In fact, I can't really remember the last time I remember hearing it. But verse number 9 says that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness. There's the word. What does it mean to be shamefaced? What does that word suggest? Again, in modern English, I suspect we hardly ever use that word. But here's what it means. It means to possess a sense of shame. It means to be described in what you and I would recognize in a way characteristic of modesty. I think the first part of that speaks volumes to help you and me etch in our mind what this means. There's some clothing, quite frankly, the person wearing it ought to be blushing. It's just shameful. It's disgraceful. That's what this word identifies. Paul told those women in Ephesus, make sure that you have a proper sense of shamefulness with respect to what ought not to be worn. And don't wear that, at least in the way that others might want you to. We've seen first modesty and now shamefacedness. But there's one later word. The third word he uses, that same verse, and sobriety. That word sobriety, as you can see, carries the essence of sound sense and good judgment. It carries the idea of self-control and decency. There are many attributes of that that are worthy of our thought. First, you and I have control over what we wear. Parents, may I suggest that our youngsters who are still in our household, we've got control over that. May we never, ever allow our little girl to go to middle school, high school, elementary school, wherever else it may be, as long as she's under our roof, wearing what's not characterized by these three words, modest, shamefaced, and, sober and filled with sobriety. For if so, we're at fault. But once she leaves our house... Once she's on her own, hopefully we have instilled within her an appreciation that certain clothing is only fit for your husband to see. And it ought not be seen in public ever, without exception. Well, those kind of thoughts, remember, these were etched in society 2,000 years ago and God's mind hasn't changed. Today... I realize we again live in a place, a pornographic country, and many others around the world are the same. But we as Christians cannot be a part of it. We must stand firm and strong in light of our conviction of the Word of God. In addition to that, you'll notice at the bottom of this slide, it seems to me that last word, that word sobriety, at least in other passages wherein that same Greek word is used, it carries this sense. I hope we're each impressed with it. To be filled with sobriety is to see things as they really are. And the reason I say that is this same Greek word is used in Acts 26, 25. And clearly it has that meaning there. A woman who then dresses immodestly, who allows things, private parts of her body to be seen because of the clothing choices she makes by someone other than her husband, She's very much like a jewel of gold and a swine snout. God made her precious and special. She was the pinnacle of His creation. And yet she chooses to live beneath her privileges. She chooses to live in a way to which others are able to not appreciate that fairness and that sobriety because of what she's wearing. 
their mind is elsewhere, and that's not good. In fairness to all of those things, you'll notice that that language was very directive, wasn't it? And certainly very, very telling. The next slide will amplify some of these thoughts as we make particular applications. One of the things that seems so very tragic, I think you and I were reared in a time when it was rather appreciated that undergarments were not to be seen in public. That day seemingly is long past. Even those in athletic environments and even those who pursue that, it seems now openly will wear only what amounts to undergarments. That's not right. That's wholly against the appreciation of what is shamefaced, what in fact is modest, and what's filled with sobriety. In fact, as you think furthermore about that one, look at the next statement. There's even come to the point where clothing designers have begun to design clothing the same color as human skin. That is to say, it's nude. And inasmuch as that clothing is made to fit tightly in most cases, and therefore it mimics the shape fully of the body, no Christian ought to ever be wearing anything like that. It doesn't conceal anything. And yet clothing designers have begun, it would seem, to develop, to pursue, and to make this a very openly available thing. The strength attached to these observations goes back to the wording in 1 Timothy 2.9 as well as the other places that we've studied so far that today. As we add those things to it, let us turn that coin over and ask this. The Word of God is very specific in that those who would be pleasing to God are commanded to flee fornication. May I ask, for a lady to wear clothing that's the, that's the attire of a harlot, how could she possibly be claiming that she's fleeing fornication? She's encouraging in the thoughts of those men looking at her the very thing that Jesus condemned and the very thing that is sexual immorality. Clearly, that is not consistent one with the other. To flee idolatry means I wear nothing that's questionable, even that could be argued as questionable. I wear what's upstanding and honest, and I wear what is honorable. You remember a moment ago we noted that text in Philippians 4.8, Think on things that are true, and the second word in the list was honorable. Is the clothing I'm choosing to wear honorable? If Jesus Christ, my Lord, were standing in front of me, would He give a thumbs up to what I've chosen to wear today? Would it be in keeping with all that's, that is in His will? If it's not, change right then and there, and perhaps even get rid of that garment completely. Or again, accessorize it with an additional garment or something. Maybe, as we add to those things, could I ask you to notice some explicit commandments? In addition to the fleeing of fornication, in Ephesians 5, verse number 3, those that would please God are reminded, in fact, commanded in light of this, never, ever engage in anything that's unclean. Now that word unclean in the Greek carries sexual ideas with it, and hence if I'm encouraging these thoughts in the mind of another, I'm guilty of uncleanness. I'm guilty of promoting it. I'm guilty of endorsing it. And therefore, I stand guilty of sin before God. As you think about all those verses, one that could be added to it is Galatians 5.19. That rather memorable list we often call the works of the flesh. 
the first several elements of that list are all in relation to sexual, sexual things. And one of them is lasciviousness. I shouldn't be moving in a way to endorse those thoughts in another. That includes dancing. I shouldn't, in fact, be engaged in these activities, including my dress, that would promote this. Finally, you might notice this. On occasion, it might be argued. Seems like that problem rests with the man. I ought to be able to wear what I want, and if he's lusting after me, it's his fault. It's just that his mind is in the gutter, and it's not directed where it ought to be. Might we think about that again using a verse like Matthew 18, 7? Could I again ask you, Jesus there himself affirmed, it is for certain that offenses will come. But how did the Lord finish that verse? He said, Woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. That means if a woman is dressing in a way that's immodest, she's contributing to his sin and she's guilty too. Therefore, as you think about this, isn't it fair to say everywhere in the Bible we find the following statement I've tried to highlight at the bottom. One cannot promote sin in another without being guilty yourself. And therefore, may again, we give consideration to the earnestness and the seriousness and the honesty that touches a subject like this one. We want to be pure people. People of hearts of purity who dress in a way that's respective of who we love and where we want to be. That's heaven. For all those reasons, let's close that slide. You may remember that Paul made a gigantic statement of directed love toward the well-being spiritually of others. It was in the context of eating meats offered to idols. And there he said, if my meat, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat till the world stands. Therefore, it may be that you feel as if you have the liberty of God to wear this. If it makes somebody else stumble, you're contributing to that error. Again, you have been the one by whom that offense has arrived. Ladies, God again directs these statements to you. And as I mentioned earlier, the men aren't left out either. Other verses tell us we must also be cautious and mindful and never wearing of what or never in fact engage in an activity that would in fact encourage a woman to sin or to engage in what's improper before God. Let's close that slide. And let's close our lesson. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5 verse number 10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. In other words, I'm going to give an account one day for what I chose to wear. Does it meet God's specifications? Is it in harmony? Is it consistent with that which is His will? If it's not, I'll have to answer for it. What would I say or what would you say? Will there be anything we can say? God said, I told you. God said, I made it known. May you and I in wisdom never allow ourselves then to fall into a description like we read at the outset of the lesson this morning. A jewel of gold and a swine snout. And a woman without discretion are very much compared to be the same. As all of us wish never to devalue what God has valued, 
your body and mine. God has placed a high value on it. And in fact, the spiritual well-being of others are such that we ought never wish to do anything that would cause them to stumble. That includes what we wear. May we all in wisdom, though the warm weather has come, not allow society to tell us what to wear because society's got it wrong. Society has poor choices. And society has gone the wrong direction. But of course, the Word of God is always right. As we close our lesson, let's do so with these summary statements. And it is in that way I would ask you, nakedness without shame is only housed in marriage now, nowhere else. If you and I are making poor clothing choices, make things right with God. Get His forgiveness for that and make changes as, as, as are in order. If we could assist you by prayer, if we could study with you, we'd be delighted to do that as well. The song encouragement's been selected, and we're going to stand in just a moment and sing that together. But if there's any scene in your life, it may not be the one we've studied today, but anything whereby we could approach God on your behalf and pray for your forgiveness as a wayward child of God, we'd be delighted to do that. Or if you need to become a Christian today, what better day than this could there be? At this point, the Lord's invitation is extended. And if we could be of assistance, we invite you to come, and so too does Jesus, while together we stand and while we sing.